0: Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the sixth week of our series, Harsh Truths. This message comes from Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. And without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. We're looking at this middle section in chapters 18 through 20, where Jesus has a lot of these hard sayings, these harsh truths, these things that when we hear them, they're some of them are hard to understand, some of them are kind of challenging, some almost seem offensive. And, uh, and we're digging into it. We're seeing that, that every time there's a great truth there, something that is driven by a heart of love and compassion. And we're gonna see one of those harsh truths this morning. We're gonna be looking at Matthew 19, uh, really focusing on verses um, uh, 16, or 16 through 30. If, if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to open it with me, to keep it open throughout our time. Uh, as we go throughout our time, all the points always come straight from the Bible. So if you have it open, you get to see the passages and right where it's, right where it all is coming from. But let me begin by reading this passage, Matthew 16 or 19 starting in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and love your, uh, you shall love your neighbors yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, He went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And then Peter said in reply, see, we've left everything and have followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you in the old world, when the son of man, or in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you will have uh, followed me, will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first. May God bless the reading of this word. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege that we do have to come together this morning and to study your word. Thank you for the things that are here that you've been teaching me. And Father, I pray that you would, that you'd get me out of the way, that you would use me to somehow communicate your timeless truth. And Father, not only that your truth would go out, but that each one of us would have hearts that are open, prepared by your spirit to hear and I do not understand, but to apply whatever you may have for us this morning. I pray your blessing in Jesus name. Amen. You know, there are times that we expect clear communication. We need clear communication. An example of that is when we get on the roads and, and we have traffic signs, we expect them to be clear. And, uh, and usually they're very, very clear. Even if you don't know the words, even though, you know, the, the colors, I mean, yellow always means caution. Red always means stop. And, and, um, and generally, again, the signs are very clear. But there are a few times you run across a sign or, or a combination of signs that kind of, kind of leave you a bit confused. You're not sure what to do. For example, uh, let's say if you're driving and you come down the road and you come to this sign, what do you do? Especially, you want to go to Route 35. Which way do you go? You know, which sign do you obey, or, or what are you supposed to do when you come to this sign? You know, which one are you supposed to obey? There are contradictory messages. Or how about these signs? I mean, you come up here, I mean, I look at that and it's like, what, you just park your car, get up and walk? I mean, it's like there's nothing that you can do when you get there. Or, or then you have this sign and I don't even know what to say. And um, I, I certainly wouldn't know what to do when you look at that. And you say, well, things should be clear. You expect clarity. And we can joke about traffic signs. But if there's a place that we expect clarity and consistency, it's even more on the roadways. We expect that from the Bible, right? We expect clarity and consistency in the reading of Jesus, reading of the teaching of Jesus. But what should we do when we come to a passage where it seems that Jesus is contradicting himself or when he's saying something that seems to be the exact opposite of what he said elsewhere in the Bible. Now, as we look into the study in the last part of Matthew 19 this morning, we're gonna see that at first glance, it might appear that Jesus is saying some things that are at odds with what he said elsewhere. And uh, it seems like he's put up two contradictory signs. We've got to work through that. And, and then we're gonna to come to this other passage where he gives this constrained and confused and even harsh teaching, you know, it, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And we're saying, what in the world is that? What does that mean? How do we apply that? Now, As we're gonna dig into this, we're gonna see that Jesus is not in any way contradicting himself and what actually you know, appears to be confusing is actually a clear teaching that he gives in, in strong words to get our attention. Uh, now let's look at this and we're gonna start by looking at the, at the man that's in the middle of the story, this man that's interacting with Jesus. In verse 16, we're told that this com- guy comes to ask a question and then in verse 20, we're told that he was a young man. In, in 22, we're told that he was very wealthy. If we go to Luke's account of the same story, Luke introduces it and tells us that he was a ruler that came and asked Jesus. And uh, so often the story is referred to as a young rich ruler. And, and we don't know for sure what kind of ruler he was, but most people believe that he was most likely a, a, um, an official in the local synagogue. And so what we're told here is that again, this was a very religious man, a very sincere man, probably a leader that was recognized in his community for his religious sincerity. He was a seeker. He came to ask Jesus a question. Some people were trying to trip Jesus up. He wasn't. He was asking a real question. A good moral man asking a question, but it was a a faulty question. A question that was flawed in its premise. The question was, what should I do? He asked Jesus saying, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What should I do? Name the price. I'm willing to do whatever it takes, but, but here's the error. What must I do? See, it shows that he assumed that eternal life was something that could be achieved by his action, that, that he somehow had the inner power to do the things that he needed to do. It's a spirit of religion. Okay, how do I perform? What rules do you want me to keep? God, how do I make you happy? And the reason that his question uh, you know, was, was flawed in a sense was that he had a flawed perspective. He, he's thinking, I'm good enough, good enough to earn God's favor, good enough even to earn heaven because, because he had this perspective that he was good. And, and we're gonna see even later on as Jesus talks about the 10 Commandments. And he responds, you know, I've kept those since I was young. You know, I've kept all the laws, I'm a good person. And he probably was by, by, by society standards. Again, he's referred to as a ruler. He was someone who, as a young man, was put in a position of leadership in the, in the synagogue because he stood out by others, by what they saw, and they recognized his, his goodness. Now, he's not the first person or the last person to think that they're good, maybe even good enough to get into heaven. Again, that's the spirit of religion, and there are many people that have that belief and that have that conviction. In in fact, if the most common misconception that I think that people have about heaven, and I talk to people all the time, is this idea, well, when we get to heaven, God's going to put our um, our good deeds on one side our bad deeds on the other side, he's going to weigh them, and, and this is really just idea that I've got to make sure I do more good than bad. It's almost this idea that you think of the blind lady of justice that's on many court buildings. You know, it's blind and, and, you know, and you have the scales here and you hope that there is more good than bad then you get into heaven. If there's more bad than good, well, well, she's got a sword, so then you're in trouble. You know, it's kind of like, okay, you hope that we're good enough. We hope that we're gonna pass the test. But there's a reason that many people when they look at this, believe and hope that they're gonna pass the test, that they're good enough to earn their way into heaven. And the cause of the confusion is how do we define what good is? Look at how Jesus responds to this man's question in verse 17. Jesus asked him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. And when Jesus says there's only one that's good, it's clearly implied the only one that's good is God. And, and, and it's implied here in Matthew, but again, in Luke's account of the same story, it's stated explicitly. So Luke uh, 18, 19 has Jesus responding this way. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except, except God alone. God is the only one that is good. And I think the weight of Jesus' statement is this. So if we're gonna talk about being good enough to earn your way into heaven, let's first of all define the standard of good that we're talking about here. And what's the standard of good? And what does Jesus say? Well, the standard is no one is good but God alone. If you wanna talk about being good, then the standard is how good are you in comparison to God? You have to be good compared to Him. You have to be holy like He is. You have to be 100% righteous like He is. Now, we may know people that we consider good by our standards, but how many people do you know that are good by that standard? That would stand before God and, and, and you know, people look at that and say, man, God would be impressed with that person. No, the only reason people that feel that they're good is that they're judging themselves by the lower standard. You see, we're judging ourselves by other people. Let me try to illustrate this by an experience I had a number of years ago when I was a pastor in Florida, I spent a weekend in prison. And, uh, well, let me maybe rephrase that. Okay. When I was a pastor in Florida, I chose to spend a weekend in a prison ministry. Um, they let me go home at night, you know, it was a choice. And, and, uh, so we we're working at this place, Martin Correctional Institution. It was a maximum security prison rated as the thir- third most secure prison in the state of Florida. It wasn't a place for first time offenders. So to be, be uh, to be put there, you had to be a multiple violent offender with a long sentence. Now, a couple days into our time there, I had a, a t- an opportunity to have a long discussion with one of the, uh, the inmates that we were working with. And in the conversation, I asked him, you know, if you were to die and God were to say, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And he said, well, I think God would let me into heaven. And, and, I, and I, I tell him it's because I think I've been good enough. I tried hard, I've been good enough. Now in my mind, my initial thought was, wait a second, look where you're at know, yeah. it's a maximum security prison um, you know your actions have landed you here you're not only in not in the general population in america you're not in a low security prison you're in one of the worst prisons in the country because of your actions why is it that you think that god's standard for being good is going to be that much lower than the standard of american society now, I didn't say it that way, I and mean, it probably wouldn't have gone well, but, but I did ask him that question. And, and you know, when you, I thought about it, and if we looked, we kind of explored it, you know why he said, I think I'm good enough, God will let me into heaven? Because he was comparing himself to all the other inmates. He's comparing himself to all the other people that were there around him. And so he's looking and saying, well, well, that guy is in multiple murder. And that guy's in for, you know, pushing drugs to kids. And this guy's in here. And he's looking at all the other people and saying, compared to the people around me, I'm pretty good. And, and what we need to realize is that's what we all do. You know, we're not comparing ourselves to the goodness of God. We're comparing ourselves to the other inmates, the people that we live around. And so we say, well, here's my coworker, man, he's really a dishonest person. He lies and boy, that person's really driven by money and, and, and boy, they're dishonest and boy, I've got this neighbor and boy, they're you know, cheating on their spouse and they left their spouse, had an affair and another, that other neighbor, they got a drinking problem. Hey, I'm pretty good compared to the other inmates around me. But the problem is is that the other inmates aren't the standard. It's God is the standard, the standard is perfection. So if I'm to be right with before God and earn my way to heaven, I have to be perfect like God is perfect. And none of us are close. You know, we might be good compared to other people. Some people might look at that and say, that's a really good person. But none of us are good compared to God. And when we stand in it, the question is, are you good enough to earn heaven? We've got to be good compared to him. God's got to look at it and say, now you impress me, man, you, look, you make me look bad. I mean, it, our, again, it, we don't come close. And so now here's what happens is this guy comes and says, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus essentially says, well, let's talk about how you define good. Only God is truly good. Are you good compared to him? And at this point, Jesus seems to go off script. He, he seems to say something that is The exact opposite of what we see him teaching elsewhere. Look at what he says again, starting in verse 16. And behold, this man came unto him and saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one that is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Wait a second, Jesus. If you enter life, keep the commandments, do? That doesn't sound right, and it continues. He said, "To which ones?" And Jesus said, "You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not both be bear false witness. Honor for your father and mother. Love your neighbors. Yourself." And we look at this and we say, "What's going on here?" He asked, "What must I do to eternal life?" And Jesus said, "Well, you know the Ten Commandments. Keep them." And again, in verse seventeen, if you enter life, keep the commandments. If you do that, he seems to be saying, if you keep all the commandments, that's how you get eternal life. Now, we have to ask, is Jesus now affirming that eternal life is something that can be earned? Well, that's the spirit of religion. You know, everywhere else in his ministry, Jesus attacked the spirit of religion. Everywhere else, in fact, he was always at odds with the religious teachers who taught that. They were teaching, yeah, it's what you do. It's keeping the rules. And he was always at odds because he would consistently say, no, it is not. You cannot earn your way to God. None of us are good enough. We're all fallen. He's saying, no, the only way that we can do that is put our faith in in God's provision, which was ultimately Jesus' death on the cross. Now we've got to ask if the persistent teaching of Jesus throughout his ministry is that you cannot earn your way to heaven, no one can earn a relationship with God through good works. And then Jesus says, here, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. What is going on? You know, we'd expect him to say, well, you know, you're asking the wrong question. You can't earn your way. You know, the fact is all of us are sinners and you need to acknowledge your sin and, and you need a savior that's going to come and save you. And that's why I've come to die on the cross. But he doesn't say anything like that. And what we need to see is that Jesus is not teaching a works gospel, work works salvation. He's not changing his message. The reason behind what Jesus is doing here is that he's a wonderful counselor and he's ex- seeking to expose a need that the man doesn't even know that he has. You see, Jesus never goes off the set talking, a group of talking points. Every person that he works with, he works with uniquely because he uniquely knows the heart. He needs, knows their need. He knows their lies. He knows the deception. It's always the same gospel, but always presented in a unique way. Now, what he didn't say, you know, we, we look at this and why didn't he say, you know, I've come to die for your sins, your loss, and I've come to be your savior. And I think he didn't say that because he knew that this man would have not understood the answer. Why? Because the man didn't think he had a problem. If Jesus said, I've come to rescue you, I've come to save you. He's like, I don't need rescuing. You know, I'm, I'm doing good, you know, I'm, I'm making it. I'm, I'm doing, I've, I'm keeping all the rules. I'm a good person. I just wanna know, do I need a little help? You know, there's still people today that have this view. And what I'll find is there'll be people that if I say, well, you're lost, you're a sinner. How, you're offended by that. How dare you say that? Well, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not lost. I'm not that bad. I'm, I'm trying hard. I'm doing good. I don't need to be rescued, but we do. And that's what Jesus is pointing out here. And look at how it plays out. Jesus tells him that he needs to keep the commandments. And he says, which ones? And so then in verses 18 to 19, he begins listing. He said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbors yourself. And, and here's what I want you to see. There's, it's significant when, when they have the giving of the 10 commandments, the Bible teaches that God gave them in two tablets. And most people that have studied this say that the two tablets were, were two different parts of the commandment. The first four all deal with our relationship with God. The second six, the second tablet, in a sense, all deal with our relationships with each other. Now, what I want you to see here is that when Jesus quotes these, he quotes five of these six commandments. They're all from the second tablet. They're all about our relationship with each other. Now that becomes significant in a moment. It's a huge point, but, but then he quotes these and the guy's amazing response is, I've done all that. I've kept them. I, I'm, I'm good. What else do I lack? You know, I'm, I'm keeping all the rules. Basically saying, I think I can stand before God and God would say, yeah, you've done that. I'm impressed, you know, you're, you're a good person. At this point, Jesus, again, not only surprises the young ritual, he does with us and what he says, because he, you know, he says, okay, okay, but you think you've kept all the commandments? Okay, he doesn't argue with them. But he says, okay, there's one more thing you still need to do, verse 21. And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, Go sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. If you want eternal life, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come and travel with me, then you'll have true treasure in heaven. Now again, we have to say, what is he saying here? What is, what is the point? You Because know, it's a shocking demand that, that he doesn't say anywhere else. There's nowhere else in the Bible when he talked to anybody and said anything like this. You don't see him with Mary or Nicodemus or the woman on the well or what. He, he never says, sell everything, give it to the poor. In fact, even when he talked to other wealthy people who followed him, like Nicodemus, he never said anything like this. So we have to ask, why does Jesus make this demand where he makes nowhere else in the Bible? And again, what he's doing is he's lovingly speaking to the deepest need of the man's heart. In John chapter 4, Jesus is speaking to this woman in Samaria, the woman at the well, and he talks to her about eternal life. Now he refers to it there as living water. And he says, I've come to offer a living water. If you drink it, you'll never thirst again. And she says, "Sir, I'd like to have that. Give me that water. Basically, she's asking the exact same question as this man here in Matthew 19. How do I have eternal life? How do I have this living water? And Jesus responds to her and says, okay, you want my water, then go get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And then Jesus tells her, you are right saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands. And now the one you have is not your husband. Now, what's interesting, there's no talk here about money. But yet he's pushing her on her marriage and her husband and relationships. And why is he doing that? And the reason is this. He's talking about eternal life, living water. What is she looking for to find fulfillment? What is she looking for to, 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 in a sense, quench her deep thirst? And what she was looking for, for hope and for security and for meaning, was men, was relationships, was sex. It's the thing that she was looking to satisfy her. It was her her functional God. Now notice he doesn't bring up money with her at all because that wasn't her issue. And now when we see this man in Matthew 19, he doesn't bring up relationships or his wife or sex or any of those things because that wasn't his issue. Here in Matthew 19, he's talking about money because that's what he trusted in as his God. That was his living water. That's what he's looking to to bring fulfillment and satisfaction that only God can do. To him, it wasn't just money. It wasn't just an instrument to be used. It was his security. It's what he he put his faith in to bring happiness. It's the thing that squeezed out God in his life. Now again, remember Jesus told him in the beginning okay you want you want eternal life keep all the commandments he said oh, I've done all these and and here's what Jesus is saying oh really have you okay we talked about the commandments and I listed all the commandments from the second tablet which is all about your relationship with the other people but let's go back to the first tablet the first tablet is your relationship with God okay let's go to the first of those commandments and what is the first commandment you shall have no other gods before me and what Jesus is saying here is, all oh, right, you know, the problem is you say, I've kept all the commandments. You have another God. Money is your God. You're not keeping all the commandments. You're trusting in this to meet your satisfaction. He said, let me illustrate this. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's kind of doing a thought experiment. He said, if, if God is really more important to you than everything else, then can you, could you conceive of giving your money away and giving it to the poor and following me? and trusting me that I'm gonna meet your needs, I'm gonna give you wealth, the wealth of heaven is literally what it's a treasure of heaven, he talks about, I'm gonna make sure you have all that you need. And what he's asking is, are you willing to give it up for God? And of course the man couldn't, why? Because money was more important to him than God. That was his God, he was breaking this first commandment. And that's why it says in verse 22, when the young man heard, heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And it says he literally was devastated because money was the most important thing to him. It's what the men and the relationships were to the woman at the well. Only she was willing to give that up to follow Jesus. And in this case, the man wasn't. In the end, he was saying, you know, I want God in my life as long as he doesn't get in the way of this. As long as he lets me have this as being my number one God. And what Jesus is doing here is he's exposing this man's sin and pointing out his need for grace. The fact of the matter is none of us keep the 10 commandments perfectly. And for those of us that feel like, well, I'm trying hard and I think I'm being good enough. And the fact is none of us do. And what Jesus at times does is to say here, let me point out the need. Let me point out that the other things that you're making God, let me do this so that you realize that you have a need for grace because it's not until we see our need that we will understand God's grace will we understand his love. And when you see that's what Jesus is doing, that helps us then understand this radical call, not only what it means then, but what it means for us now. You in know, this interaction with this young man, you know, Jesus is trying to get his attention. He's trying to, you know, to, to help him to see the true nature of where his heart and, and, um, it, and he's trying to help him to see some things about his own life that, that he didn't keep all the rules like he thought he did that he was trusting in something else as his God. And, and, and in a sense, what he's doing is saying, if you really want to make me God, number one, the question he's asking him, the question he's asking each one of us, is there anything that you would be unwilling to give up to follow Jesus? Because if I'm really going to say, I really want to follow you, you know, then I have to be willing to, in a sense, let God be God. You know, there've been numerous times that I've had conversations with people that have been relatively new to our church and, and, um, and, and it comes up in the conversation that they maybe have chosen a lifestyle that is inconsistent with the Bible's teaching. And, and they'll tell me that. And a lot of times it's kind of giving me a chance to reject them, you know, well, here's what I'm doing. And they're almost expecting, no, you, you don't belong here. No, I'm, I'm glad you're coming. Glad. And as well, tell them, or we're really glad you're here. You know, all of us need to come to church as we are. Uh, we, come to, we come to church, we let, we let God speak to our lives. We need to hear the call of God. We don't clean up to come to God. We come to God as we are, let him clean us up. But then I'll say something along the lines of, sooner or later, you're gonna have to make a choice of whether or not you're gonna really follow Christ, whether you're gonna submit to his leadership in your life. And in part, what that means is that means acknowledging that he's God. And it means telling him, because you're God, whatever you point out in my life that you say is wrong, I'll be willing to surrender. I'll be willing to, to rearrange my life to fit your call. And often what I'll get is an immediate response. Somebody will talk about that one area in their life and they'll say, well, God will never call me to give this up. God made me this way. God gave me that relationship. This is, you know, this is who I am. And, and in a sense, what they're saying, the exact same answer, the young rich ruler, you know, God, okay, now I want to follow you, but this is off limits. You can't touch this. And when people do that, they're saying, I want a God, but a God on my terms. And the fact of the matter is, is the first thing of having God is saying, I'm not God anymore. And I accept you on your terms, which is that you're God and you have the right to point on anything in my life. And if we're not willing to do that, we're like the young rich ruler, unwilling to surrender our own God. And like him, we'll ultimately walk away sad without a true relationship with God. But if we come to God, we have to allow him to be God. And that means anything that he points out in our life, we're willing to surrender. It sounds harsh, but it's actually a blessing because it's aligning our life with what he's created us to do now. But how do we do that? Because again, this isn't works. It's not works, it's not performance. It's not try harder, give it up. Well, let's look at what he's saying about how we do it. It's, It's something that in a sense is impossible and it's only through God's provision do we discover the path to this impossible. After his interaction with the young rich ruler, we're told that the young man went away filled with sorrow. And then after he walked away in verses 23 and 24, we're told that Jesus turned to his disciples and told them, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, again, on surface that seems harsh, but Jesus is using strong language to teach us something. First about the spiritual danger of wealth and of blessing. Now, these words would have been totally shocking to the audience in Jesus' Jesus' day, because people in his day, the the church leaders, generally taught a version of prosperity gospel. This idea that if you were wealthy, it was a sign that God was blessing you. It was a sign that you were right with God. And now Jesus turns around and says, well, actually wealth can be a hurdle. It can be a a barrier to the kingdom. Now, what we've got to say is it was offensive at that time that wealth could be a handicap, but look at why. Let's think about what Jesus teaches in Matthew 6. Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And that's the idea that saying here's the challenge of wealth, of prosperity, is at times I can make that my God. I can make that my treasure. It could be something that competes with me and it. And and ultimately, because it brings a sense of security, sometimes the wealthier people, the, the, the people that are more secure financially, it's harder for them to see their spiritual need. So there's a danger. And to make his point unmistakable, he now uses this illustration where he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, now I know people that have tried to explain this and saying, well, because it's obviously impossible. And they're like, well, the eye of the needle was really this gate in Jerusalem and it was really low and the came had to get on his knees and it, it was really hard, but it was possible. No, that's not what it's saying. It's, it's literally saying what it's called to. And, and you think about this idea, you know, you think of a needle. Okay, so I, I, I got a needle, I got a big one, just to make it a little bigger. And you can't even see it from here. And even with this big one, there's still the eye of the needle is this little tiny thing I can, I could barely get a thread through here. Um, I need my glasses and you know, it's hard to do. Now you think of this needle and then you think of a camel. Okay, a camel was the largest animal in Palestine. It's the largest animal that most of the people living at that time would have ever seen. It's way bigger than a horse. It's, and, and what Jesus is saying, could you imagine getting that through this? The largest animal that you could imagine through the smallest possible opening. It's totally impossible let me try to even visualize this point. So, you know, so I've got the needle here. And so then I brought in and it's, well, okay. I didn't bring in a camel. So I said, okay, what can I bring? So I, the best I could do is a bear. And so, so I've got a bear here and, and uh, so I bring out my bear and, and so we can, and you're probably thinking, wait a second, I thought we we're gonna do a live animal here. You think I was gonna do a live animal? Seriously, it's like, what, what'd you expect me to do? Bring my dog in here and try to fit him through the eye of the needle? Actually I tried that yesterday and uh, didn't work very well. It wasn't very cooperative. Uh, he gets stressed out and then he peed all over me. And I thought that probably wouldn't work on a Sunday morning up here. So it's probably a bad illustration. And uh, said, so and some of somebody, uh, somebody's, I might have a visitor here that's from like Humane Society or Peter or something. And they're like, we're out of here. Uh, this guy, we're reporting this guy. And you know, that's, it's a joke. I didn't actually do that with my dog. Uh, I, I need a disclaimer here. So just so you know, uh, no animals were used or harmed in the preparation or presentation of this message. Okay, so this is just, just kind of dope. So so, but you think about that, if I tried to even put my dog, wouldn't be very cooperative. Can I, even with this little tiny bear, what's the chance of me getting this bear through the eye of the needle? There's nothing I'm gonna do that's gonna come close. And then if you think about not only dog, a camel who is fighting against you. I mean, the fact is that is it's not hard to do, It's it's ridiculously impossible. It's meant to be you know, almost humorous in its impossibility in this illustration, and that's the whole point. Now, why does Jesus say this? Remember, what's the original question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response is to that question, and he's saying, if it's what you need to do to do eternal life, it is impossible. It's as it's, it's impossible as fitting a camel through the eye of the needle. And it's even more so for a wealthy person. You say, I might not be a, a camel, but I'm not getting through the eye of the needle. None of us are. None of us can get close to that. And that's why you see the disciples figuring that out and they're bothered by what they heard. And they ask, you know, who can be saved? If it's impossible, how can any of us be saved? And that's when Jesus said in verse 26, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are impossible. And, ex- and he's calling us to accept the impossibility so that we may discover the possible. Again, Jesus' teaching here is having its defi- desired effect. It's shocking those who heard him to so their crying out, who can be saved? They, they hear the extreme of the illustration and they think, you know, if, you know passing or getting to the kingdom is like passing through the needle. I, I, I'm never going to fit. And he says, yes, it's impossible. With men, it is impossible. Doing it on your own, if it's doing your own works, if it's doing the right thing, it's impossible. You will never come close. But with God, it's possible. God will do the impossible. What you can never do on your own, God can do through you. That's the whole message of Jesus Christ. What do we need to do? We need to acknowledge our need. It's not about religion. It's not about trying hard. It's not about scales are more good than bad. It's recognizing that I'm bad, I'm a, I'm a sinner. That we all are sinners and not only that, but we cannot fix our own problems. They give up on religion and saying I'm I'm trying to fix it. No, we can't fix it. We acknowledge our need and throw on ourselves in dependency on Jesus Christ and recognize that what was impossible with us, God made possible through Jesus Christ, who came and who lived a perfect life and who died on the cross taking our sins, taking our punishment, so that all those who believe in him, he not only takes our sin off of him, but he gives us his righteousness so that we stand before God, therefore, as being holy and perfect. We stand as being righteous before God, those who have faith in him. God did the impossible, through God is impossible. Or through God is possible. Now there's a hope in this. Number one, there's an invitation. If you're here, it's not about striving; it's about trusting in Christ. And but then there's still this incredibly hard thing about selling you, give, giving what we have and the gods that we have. And but there's a promise of surrender here as well. Again, look what we see in verse 27. Peter said in reply, "See, we've left everything and followed you. Well, we have, you know, we've done that." And Peter's like, "Okay, you have." And and, but it's not just about things. It's about whatever your God is. And then he continues on in verse 29, Jesus, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fi- father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And he's basically saying, if you're willing to take whatever has been your God and say, God, I surrender that. I give you the right to change me. That is painful. That is difficult. But if you're willing to do whatever that is, it's not just about money, it's relationships and children and whatever, you know, and anything, if we're willing to do it, what does he say? You will receive a hundredfold inheritance eternal life. You will receive the treasures of heaven. See what he's teaching here is that Christianity is not just a life where it's like self-discipline and deny yourself and be miserable and turn your back on the deceitful treasures of the world. And, and one day you'll get heaven. No, that's not what it's saying. What he's saying here is that, if, is that we need to realize that Satan is telling us a lie. This man that put his treasure and his wealth, it was a lie that wouldn't meet all of his needs. That's why he's coming to Jesus. What else do I need to have? I'm doing all this and I, I know it's not enough and it's never enough. And we recognize that lie. And we come and we say, what God calls us to do is to turn our backs on the lie, on the other things that would seek to be our God. that that can never satisfy. And learn to instead invest ourselves in the one living water that can truly satisfy. And when we have that, suddenly we realize we can now enjoy all the other things. We can properly enjoy our wealth and our marriages and our relationships and everything else that God has given us. I love what Jesus says in John 10, the thief comes away to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they might have life and they might have it abundantly. You know, Satan comes to distort, to destroy, to take away, to lie to take these good things that God has given us and he wants us to make them God things and we make them God things, they become destructive things. And he says, no, I want you to turn your back on these things that that are good things and, and let go of them as a God thing and let them be a good thing under God's parameters. And then when you put God in the God thing, then you're gonna fully understand and appreciate and enjoy all these other good things. And you're gonna do so properly. It's ultimately a pursuit of a life of joy. A life of fulfillment. Even here, what does he call this man? You will have treasure in heaven. It's a pursuit of treasure. It's a pursuit of the, the life that we were created for. But you know what that means is that means that each one of us have to be willing to recognize, okay, what are the lies that Satan has been telling me? What are the things that he has been telling me? I need this and that we're not willing to let go because those are the things that are causing us to walk away from Jesus sad because we're not willing to truly embrace him as who he is not only as our forgiver of our sins but as our lord as our god as the leader of our life there may be some here today where you know part of what god's calling you to do is to see the spirit of religion of this young man who came what must i do and you've been trying hard god what do i do how else do i do it i'm not sure i'm hoping i'm getting heaven and you're worried about it and I want you to see that what Jesus is doing is he's speaking directly to you. And he's saying, it's not about what you do. It's not about religion. It's about acknowledging that you can't do. It starts by admitting that you're not keeping all the rules. You're, we're, all, we're all sinners. We've all broken the 10 commandments and it is impossible. It's like what you're trying to do is like trying to climb through the eye of a needle. And so it starts by saying, God, I admit my need. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to give me what I could never accomplish. You do the impossible that I could never do. There may be some here where the, you need to do that today, where you need to come and say, God, I agree with you, I'm, I'm a sinner. I give up trying to do, to perform. I acknowledge my need and I ask you to forgive me through what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. I want not a religion or a, re, a religion, I want a relationship with God through what God has done. There are others who may be here today and the issue that God is calling you to is like this young man. Where God's saying, okay, I want want to do this. I want this relationship with you. And he's saying, okay, what is the thing? The woman at the well was relationships. It was sex. And to this man, it's it's, it's wealth. And for each one of us here, it's something different. Is there something that you're saying, God, I I will do this, but you can't touch this. Can't change this. I need this. God's saying, do you trust me with it? God doesn't want you to be miserable. God's not calling. No, no. He said, do you trust me with it? Are you willing to trust me as a loving father who knows you better than anyone else and saying, God, I trust you. I give you the right to be Lord and leader of my life. Anything that you point out is wrong. Anything that you tell me to do, I'm not going to necessarily be able to do it right away, but I'm willing to surrender. I'm willing to let you change me. And for many, that's a scary thing. For all of us, it's a scary thing. But are you willing to trust God? Are you willing to trust his goodness? Are you willing to trust his love and his compassion? and realize that as you let go of what you're holding on to, it's only so that he can then place into your hands something that is far better, this abundant life that he's created you for. Are you willing to do that? For some, that may be where you're at today. And no matter what you've been holding on to, the fact of the matter is God always gives an invitation of grace. And look, he's just gonna judge you for what you've done or what you've, he says, come to me. Come to me all that is heavy burden and I will give you rest. Come to me and I will give you grace and forgiveness. Are you willing to do that today? And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, community church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life/connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.